Hey everybody, Raul here for Bass Musician Magazine, and today we have the extraordinary honor and pleasure of catching up with somebody who you've seen here countless times and almost needs no introduction, George Gekas from The Revivalists. George, so great to catch up. It's been a minute. We first talked in 2016, did a catch up in 2018, and The Revivalists have just been hammering away during this whole time since we've last chatted. Very exciting, you guys have a new album, Pour It Out Into The Night, that just dropped a few days ago as of this moment that we're talking. So let's talk a little about kind of the, the gap from 2018, tell us about all this activity, all this stuff you guys have been doing. Well, first of all, I wanna say thank you, Raul, for having me back. A lot's happened since I've seen you last, spoke to you. And coming off of 2018, that was the last we had recorded a record called Take Good Care. And we had finished the cycle for that. And we were about to finish up the last touring for that record. And next thing you know, the pandemic hit. So we were on, you know, like I think it was the first week of that tour, that February, we had done two or three shows. And we were in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it, we were, it said, hey, everybody, you're going on the plane. <laughs> you're going home. Yeah. And so from that point, you know, there was that time, trying to think, early, early pandemic where it was kind of like still fun a little bit. Those first couple of weeks where I was just like holed up in my room, just working on a lot of production stuff, like really diving into that and playing a ton of music and just having a good time. And then eventually my wife who was pregnant gave birth to our daughter Penelope and I went and do full blown caretaker role for the first year of her life. And that was also being balanced with, I'd say around you know July, August, September, the band started meeting up to work on music again. So we had this three, four, five month stretch of not doing anything, which is the longest we had ever taken in our careers. Mm. And it definitely, having that time apart, definitely helped us grow as individuals and as a collective unit. Because when we came back, everybody was just excited to get to be in a room playing with each other. We were, and we were ready to do what we needed to do for this record on the opposite side of the pandemic. So. You know, as things got slowly back to normal, we went back, started doing more shows and everything. And then last year we recorded this record in a studio called Guilford Sounds in Guilford, Vermont. And then we recorded it a little bit in May in New Orleans at a studio called Marini Studios. And yeah, we, we had an absolute blast making it. And now we it's, it's officially out, and we are ready to hit the summer nice. and do a bunch of touring for it. Yeah, very nice. Well, in listening both to the album and as time has passed, this has a, an interesting collection of kind of motivational, a, a great variety of sounds ranging from almost like fifties punk to gospel-y yep. kind of things. There is definitely some kind of solo guitar voice, but it, it, it is an evolution 
of your music and I can we can hear I can hear the the revivalist that I'm used to hearing but I'm also hearing new notes and new themes and different things is do you feel like the the music's evolving and are you evolving along as a as a bassist with it yeah absolutely like I'm in a really unique position in that we never really formulaically have set out to be like, we need to sound like this. We need to sound like this. And being uh, fortunate enough to have a frontman with a very distinctive voice allows us to dip our toes into to various ponds and waters and streams and stuff. And having said that, we never really think about it in terms of, oh, you know, we need like a, a 50s style doo-wop ballad here. Or we need like a punk rock if we're in the room together and we're we're playing it and it feels good, we have the transparency and the the history with each other. Be like, we want to do this. When we when everybody's feeling it, we can then move it on to, you know, check them. Like, can we show this one to a producer? And sometimes they want to work on it, and sometimes they don't. And that's just like uh, the vulnerability of it all is when you put yourself out there to try that. But for me, it's an evolution because we've changed as people. Yeah, as a player, you know, when I was young and in my 20s, I was so concerned about trying to, I guess, impress people or, you know, try and catch people off guard with what I was doing and try and, like, do do necessarily more than serving the song. And, you know, the older we get, we realize that that is the most important thing to do. There's a time and a place for everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And if the song calls for certain parts, you can – you know, extend things and do more extended techniques and stuff. But usually the producer and the people will want you to do what's best for the song. But you also want it to be made known that you can handle whatever you want. So when they say to go for it on a couple takes, you, you get your, your shot. And if you're lucky, that makes the record sometimes. So very nice. And so basically in, in the process of the songwriting and stuff, you you develop your own lines. They they give you the PSU. You, is it all kind of coming together all simultaneously? We always have this idea where like if you can beat the demo, then you can then you can come up with your parts. And I'd say ninety five percent of this record. Yeah, I think it's, besides one song, there is one song where like there's a a verse and a chorus that was already set where, you know, I even tried a million different things with the producer. And at one point my part was in it. And then next part is part from the demo. And it, it flip flopped so many times while the music around me was changing, you know, but like I was basically changing parts because, you know, the orientations of the arrangement was changing here with the guitars and the chordal instruments. And then sometimes the rhythm was changing and I was just kind of like plugging myself along. So after trying five, six, seven variations of this, we scrapped it and said, we're going back to the original. So then I had to fly in. That was actually the hardest part of recording this entire record for me was flying in and doing a part that was, you could tell was played by a guitar player who had just kind of thrown something together, but it, it fit. And if you were to like isolate it singularly on its own, mm-hmm. it sounded insane. If that makes sense where I, you know, I've, I've noticed this now I've done some bass isolation tracks and specifically there's one by Ben Shepard on uh, Soundgarden's burden in my hand. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the bass by itself, 
it just it's super creative and it's outside the box and then when you hear it in context it just sounds perfect so that's kind of what i had to do with that specific track uh it's called uh how we move but mm-hmm. most of the, the music uh yeah i had some parts that i had come up with before and then i took the liberty in the studio to change stuff up and that's when you have a you're I'm at the point now where I can trust my gut, my intuition. If something needs to stay the same, I'll leave it. And if something needs to change, I'll change it. And you just need to know when your moments are to do that. Very nice. Very nice. Well, there's certainly a, a generous helping of base work in this, whether it is like, and don't look back. That was one that was particularly, you driving the, the boat there. On... <laughs> that, you know, that one's great. That became, we... You know, when you do a record, you you want to test some of the songs out live mm-hmm. and want to save some of them. Specifically, Don't Look Back was a song that we started playing last summer and peppering it into our set. And I don't know if we even thought at that point that that might make the record, but the crowd reaction from it was so positive that we told the producer, like, we, we need to do this one. So mm-hmm. we literally did that track. That's three takes at the end of the session in Vermont, we knocked it out in 20 minutes. And what you're hearing is either the first, second or third take in full. I would say out of this entire record there, it, all the bass parts are played through. Like I did, it's all one take, nice. whatever that take is. It wasn't really plugged together just because that's, that's the way it worked out in this session. You know, like we've done tracks before where I'm sitting in a chair next to a producer and mm-hmm. we're just hammering away at something. That's fun too. But it also feels better to know that you can nail anything in one take. So, and use the little technology, as we say. You know, if you're a little fast here, if you're rushing here, if you're behind the beat there, you know, you can fix stuff here and there. But yeah, for the most part, I didn't have to come back and do any overdubbing or anything like that. Very nice. Very nice. And another characteristic I'll say throughout, again, I do hear New Orleans, in, even if you recorded in Vermont. I'm still here in New Orleans, especially like with Kid, and you know I, I get I get the feel, like oh yeah, the roots of the band are in everything. Definitely, yeah, and specifically with Kid, what's really interesting about that track is so we recorded everything. You know, recording is done. I did a bulk of the recording on my two. I had my four string Sadowski and which and my five string Sadowski and then the studio had a four string uh P Sadowski with flats I used that and I believe Kid had the four string uh, Sadowski with the P on it and you know the whole last record I did was all vintage P bass like just that's what that record called for and then we're starting to rehearse for the record and I'm realizing that our keys player who's had you know three four five different parts going on in each song he wasn't able to cover the low register necessary for a lot of these tracks so it's like hey you should bring that five string back so now i'm playing five and it's not that i didn't think i'd ever play it again but i was not expecting on this album cycle to be playing primarily five string and i'm doing a lot of low b stuff which is nice because like back you know, when I started playing at 15, 16, I always wanted to play five and then I switched to five and then, you know, it's like, oh no, you got to go back and, and play four and have like the vintage sound, but it's, it's nice to know I can do both. And it's nice to know that 
I have the understanding and the back of my bandmates to be like, whatever sounds best at time, go with that and, and trust my gut for it. Excellent. So, yeah. Excellent. And as you've been mentioning the Sadowskis, let's talk a little bit about gear. How are you getting your sound nowadays? Again, I hear Sadowski predominantly. And yeah, you know, I've, I've been using between the basses I have from Roger, I have a four string that's always like when it comes to recording, that's usually the bass I'll go to for anything, unless, you know, a producer wants something vintage or a little quirky. Cause like on this record, I played a K bass on something. There was a silver tone bass. Um, I used a D Angelico hollow body, but primarily it's the Sadowskis that I use. But I also, because I knew we were playing more five string, I had uh, an F bass made for myself, which is a fantastic instrument. I would say it's the best feeling bass I've ever played. Nice. I believe the last time I saw you in person was at NAMM. This is 2019. <laughs> and I went, I went and I probably played a thousand basses. Literally, I, I tried them all and the best feeling bass was the F bass. So I knew when I needed to have a couple five strings for this upcoming record cycle that I knew I wanted to get an F bass. So between the Sadowski and the F bass, those are my two live rigs right now. And you know, it's, it's apples and oranges cause they both do amazing things, but it's, it's when I wake up, what do I feel like playing that day? So. Absolutely. Well, and even when you look at the difference that wood makes, I mean, oh, yeah. with, with F bass, I believe they're using a lot of Canadian maple uh -huh. and, and you know Rogers building with other woods and oh it's it's great the variety and that each bass has its own voice are there any other elements i think amplification wise or i'm using a Aguilar i believe it's called the the DB7 it's the big amp with 212 or 12AX7s and that with an 810 but you know at at this point when you're starting to play sheds and these bigger rooms and these larger events I've come to realize the amp, at least the speaker cabinet, is not nearly as important as what you're sending out to front of house. And mm -hmm. for me, I have my my pre is my Noble, my Noble DI, which, as everybody knows, it's fantastic. Especially if you're on any of your monitors, just the tube saturation on it, it just sounds so warm and buttery, and it, it makes everything feel amazing. So that's my pre and in my post is a, a Motown DI that's getting sent to front of house. And he actually, our front of house engineer blends both of them depending on what track. So if you want more tube, he can bump this. And if he wants more of that, just like Motown kind of like cutting through punchy sound, he does that. And then he has it compressed together on its own channel. So yeah. It's a lot different than just plugging in the way it used to be, just, you know, right into the jack and go. But yeah, between the new, the bases and the noble, that's everything else is secondary. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it, it is always one of those fascinating things that I think many bases that keep amps on stage, it's because they want to feel the air pushing yes. behind them. Yeah. Because there's so much sound and there's so much going on and they miss that kind of being swept up into the current <laughs> with those vibrations. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're starting, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because they have these, I can't think of the name of it. It's like the butt kicker, but it's the pads you can stand on, right? Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone recently saw an artist performing where they had one of those, but it rolled out. 
Oh, and wow. we're at the point of the technology where it can roll out, I expect that to be seen a lot of places because I've actually thought about getting one before. The problem is, is it's a huge, heavy, bulky piece of equipment that needs its own road case yes, and everything. Yes. Like, is it really worth this or can I just kind of suck it up and deal with it? But everybody obviously wants to feel that. And mm -hmm. yeah, I've tried to explain to a lot of people when you go to ears, it's almost more important to feel yourself than to be able to hear. And every room is different. You know, there's so many different variables that go into making a live sound feel comfortable for you to get on stage. And whether it's ambience coming in and out or, or wanting to be in that like in the box feel. But I, I do think that you're going to see more and more people start utilizing something that reverberates, especially if it's going to be able to roll up. Absolutely. So, yeah. so if you're out there, I would love to try whatever company <laughs> has it. I would love to try that. I've uh, tried the, the bass beat before. Is that what it's called? The backbeat. Yeah, I back. I. It works good in theory, but it only has your strap vibrating. I thought it would make my whole body vibrate, yeah. but it, it is better than nothing. It it definitely helps. Gotcha. Well, I will definitely keep my eyes out and technology. Yeah. I mean, the portability, and I, I know what you're talking about. I've, I think I had one yeah, at one of the exactly. NAMM shows. But yeah. you look at it and you go, oh, my gosh, this is a two-person. 70 pounds, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, and it's not compact. So those are all issues that, that needed to change. So as you mentioned touring, I know there's a lot of touring coming on. You guys are getting ready yeah. to head out on the road. And it looks like it's almost a year-long uh, process. <laughs> so yes. That's very exciting and a, and a variety of venues. I looked, we are used to be in the Pacific Northwest. We've relocated to Las Vegas. I'll see you guys are coming to Vegas in September. Wow. But you're playing the Edgefield out in, in good old uh, Troutdale out of Portland. So a, a nice, lovely open air kind of venue. So again, managing sound is so distinctive. It has its challenges each place that you step up. Of course. You know, it's funny you mention that because on this last tour, we were playing in D.C. at a room called The Anthem, and it's this beautiful 5,000 capacity indoor amphitheater right on the wharf in D.C. And I was I had my in-ears out and I'm with my wireless and I went to front of house, which is I'm not being a. I'm not exaggerating, I'm saying like probably 50 yards from the stage. <laughs> yeah. And I was just, and this was when nobody else was playing, and I was just playing and getting to hear my bass, how it sounded, and realizing when it's reverberating and the, the sonic qualities of it through these massive PA speakers, how it affected my playing and what I needed to do and not need to do. What I realized is that holding of notes longer than I would think, dropping out more in certain parts, and maybe pulsating and driving a little differently than I would think to do on stage with my in-ears. And that's one thing I've that I learned by doing that that is going to translate better on these bigger stages. Because, you know, the way you would play and approach something in like a small jazz club yeah. sonically is incredibly different, but unless you're out there and you can hear how you sound, you wouldn't know to do it. So yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, but I, you know, I'm excited to play a bunch of outdoor sheds and it, it's the summer. You want to be outside doing this kind of stuff. 
Absolutely. Well, and the fact that you have one sound when the venue is empty, but then when you add human bodies in there, they absorb like baffling. And so it can change. You could have a great level when the place was empty and be falling short when it's full. So it's a real challenge. Yeah. Well, I think from the player perspective, you just need to make sure that you send a really clean, great signal and you need to trust the front of house guy, but it, you know, it's a, it's a relationship with yeah. who's ever in that perspective running sound for you. You need to find a, a tone that you both really like. And, you know, you could hear the game tape after and it might sound good there, but you need to, to really trust that person. And they want it to sound good too. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, Absolutely. Through have a clean signal and be able to do your job properly. Nice. Well, and I'm sure people, if they want to know where you're, where you're going to be, because you're going to be in a town near them at some point, no matter where people yeah, are in the country. All over North America. If you want to go to revivalist.com and, or, you know, go to any of our socials, you can see our tour dates, but we'll be playing a lot of great places all summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one more thing I did want to mention, you guys have taken on a philanthropic, hard to say word, cause rev causes tell us a little bit about this yeah so rev causes is the nonprofit that we created where every year we pick a group of various charitable endeavors in order to support and a dollar from every show proceeds go to support these various funds and we never uh, we like to to share the wealth so to speak so every year we switch it up Mm-hmm. But, you know, we like to do things that kind of revolve around the same causes and do stuff on the local and national level so we don't feel like it's just going to the same place all the time. But, yeah, we'll definitely be releasing some stuff related to that during the summer as well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, as always, if people want to stay on top of things, the revivalist.com. It's the revivalists on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the social yep. media. Easy to find. And Make sure people Not check out based on Instagram. Oh, so and I'll, be, I'll be posting more stuff as the summer comes out for sure. That's exciting. And of course, people need to find pour it out into the night. Yeah. Give it a listen. Yeah. We're really excited about it. We're, uh, we're ready to start playing all these songs live. Nice. Nice. Well, George, it's so great to catch up with you. Folks, you've seen him here. George Gekas on Bass Musician Magazine. Thank you, Raul.